people of God this morning, we look together at uh, God's word in First Timothy, uh, First Timothy, or First Peter, not Timothy, First Peter, uh, chapter one. First Peter, chapter one. We'll read together verses three through nine, which will be our text. We'll be looking at uh, the that uh, passage. People of God, hear the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials." that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. People of God, we look together at the theme of rejoicing with joy inexpressible. You might note that in uh, the text, uh, the the verse that we get this theme from, uh, that this is not a command. Rejoicing with joy unexpressible is a declaration. You rejoice with joy unexpressible. It isn't a rejoice as a command, but it is you rejoice with joy unexpressible. It is a description of the Christian life and the Christian's lifestyle. Now, certainly, there are other places in Scripture that tell us to rejoice. And you, it always strikes me that God's commands uh, are not a burden. And this is certainly, the, we certainly see such evidence. Uh, the description of the life, a command, uh, one of God's commands to us, rejoice with joy unexpressible. What glorious commands our God gives us. These commands that fill our lives with their fullness. Uh, He doesn't give us commands to, to put us into the depths of despair. He would command us to, to weep over our sin, yes. But in a context where our lifestyle as a believer can be described as rejoicing with joy inexpressible. Given times and circumstances, we might think 
that there are many reasons why we cannot rejoice with joy inexpressible. Or we might have all kinds of reasons to be filled with despair. But God's word comes to us and it says that our life has a fundamental aspect to it as believers and that is rejoicing with joy inexpressible. Even in the context of trials, which is our first point, the word of God is not one which simply ignores the reality of the difficulties in which we face, but it it sets it before us. It weaves together a passage of Scripture that deals with the reality of encountering various trials in our lives, but it declares that even in this context, we are a people that are rejoicing with joy inexpressible. And verse 3 is tied to verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In this you greatly rejoice. He wants to focus our mind and heart on those things that are the cause. We have a reason to greatly rejoice, and that reason is that God has saved us. According to his abundant mercy has saved us. Uh, The nature of that salvation is set before us in the text. uh, In a context of of the phrase being born again. We don't see the word born again, but it says he has begotten us again to a living hope. And that begotten us again is the same word and theme that talks about being born again. It's we have been regenerated. We have been given new life as his people. Therefore, we would bless our God and rejoice with joy inexpressible. So the first great theme that it ties our rejoicing to is the fact that we have been saved. We have been born again as God's people through the resurrection, which focuses on life, the life that Christ has Uh, that we have in Christ that's tied this new beginning, this new life is tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, rejoicing with joy inexpressible. But not only what God has done in the past is focused on, but what God is going to do in the future. Uh, That's verse 4. We have... He has given us a living hope through the resurrection. So uh, verse uh, 3 is focused on what God has done for us in the past with a present of focusing and having a hope uh, through the resurrection. A hope to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away. It's talking about our inheritance. The... uh, Uh, Some may think that they have an inheritance, but it may fade away. Uh, An economy may be totally wiped out. One's one's whole life structure uh, may be taken away. Uh, 
but is there still reason, but is the ultimate hope and inheritance taken away? Our inheritance as believers can never be taken away. There are many things that can be taken away, and we never know uh, when that can happen. Uh, we've seen the, the huge disruption uh, for all kinds of reasons to an economy, uh, uh, to a world order. Uh, and, uh, and if we uh, were living in U- Ukraine, we would see that as well. I, was, I have personally spoken to a, a young couple uh, in Ukraine, uh, and they're part of a Ukrainian uh, church, um, uh, Presbyterian Reformed Church that uh, uh, like an OPC missionary is working with this young couple and, and he's in the ministry and he graduated from a seminary and his home is in the, the, that second uh, largest city in Ukraine. And that city uh, was about a, uh, over a million people and his particular focus of ministry was working in and with college students and university students because that city had over 200,000 university students in it. And it's a ghost town today. Everything's taken away. Uh, people's inheritance of what they thought they had is gone. It's totally gone. Or at least it's not accessible at the present moment. It's still a ghost town. And one could say, well, is there any foundation? But they have a hope that cannot fade away, cannot be taken away. And we, as God's people, have that hope. Our inheritance can never be changed. It cannot be erased. It cannot be destroyed by inflation or anything else. It does not fade away. It does not disappear in heaven for you. That first level of inheritance is is in heaven itself. The second is in the new heavens and the new earth. But this is an inheritance that cannot be taken away. It is absolutely guaranteed for the child of God. Nothing in this world can change that. And in this we greatly rejoice. It is the overall truth that keeps that multiplication of joy in our hearts going. And we can be absolutely certain that this is going to happen because you are kept by the power of God. Verse 5. We are kept by the power of God. We talked about the mercy of God in verse 3. That mercy, that undeserved favor, that unrelenting love, that ongoing uh, mercy and grace of God that comes to us. But we are kept by His power. It isn't a mercy and it's, it's not a love that's incapable of fulfilling what it desires to do because it is God's power that keeps us. God is keeping us. That word keep 
is a word that's used throughout Scripture in many and, and different places. One of the places it's used is when it this comes as a command to us in, in that we are commanded to keep the law. And when we think of keeping the law, oftentimes our minds go to obey the law. And certainly to keep the law, uh, there is an element of obedience uh, that is without a doubt. But if that's the only thing we think about in terms of keep, we really shortchange the word. Because the word keep is not the word obey. And there is a difference. And that word keep has, be, uh, has behind it, uh, first of all, an element of absolutely treasuring. Those things that you treasure the most, you keep, you hold them, you, you, uh, you keep them close. It's like a, a family heirloom that's carried on from a generation to generation and it's kept, it's not thrown away. You keep those family heirlooms and you treasure them. So holding on to, treasuring is also an element of the word keep. And it's, and, and it's also the word keep has behind it uh, an element of power to keep. Uh, so keep and power go together. It's like a, a castle uh, in, a, uh, in, the, in the ancient world. Uh, a castle was the place of, of the great protection that would be offered to the people around them. And it, there could be walls around the city, and then within the city there could be a castle, and then within the castle there would be the keep, and the keep would be the strongest place, the place that would you would be the most protected in the place that was the best protected in the city. That's the keep. So there's an also this element of, of protection and being able to be protected with this word keep. So keep and power go hand in hand. They follow one another. And if you have the power, then you can never, you will never be overrun. You could never be conquered. And of course, God is the one that is all-powerful. He is all-knowing, but he is all-powerful. And there is nothing in this entire world. And we ourselves cannot destroy the power of God that's keeping us. He, he preserves us. He protects us. That's the God that is work within us. Therefore, we greatly rejoice. We have the one who is the most powerful. He is all powerful and his power is directed to preserve, protect, and keep us. Therefore, the trials of life, no matter how powerful they may seem, are nothing in comparison to the power of God that is keeping his children and holding us and protecting us ultimately for all eternity and to eternity itself. That God is the one, verse 5, we are kept by the power of God through faith 
through faith. Faith is mentioned repeatedly in these verses. Uh, That faith, that belief, that confidence, that assurance that God gives us, the faith uh, is, of course, not the source of God's power, but faith is that gift that God has given us by which we recognize the power of God in our lives. In this you greatly rejoice. It is a power for salvation itself. A power for salvation itself. That saving work of God. uh, The saving work in Christ and the power of His resurrection that saving work of God that that, uh, has removed our sin, that has clothed us with the righteousness of Christ, that power that is continuing to transform us through all kinds of means and and circumstances. The particular focus here is tested by trial, but God is the one that's holding us in this for salvation, for salvation, ready to be revealed. And that just points out that the word salvation in Scripture isn't just about initial salvation in the life of a child of God in which they're saved uh, from their sin, uh, from the deadness of of their mind and heart, but salvation is that broad character, that broad word to describe how we're initially saved and we're saved today and we're saved for the future and we'll be saved in the future. Salvation is a past, present, and future work of God for his people. Ready for the salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so, though at the beginning of the verse, or or the end of verse 4, it talks reserved in heaven for you, then verse 5 brings us to the second coming and the new heavens and the new earth, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so you have this broad declaration of of whether it's the present age or whether it's when we're in heaven or whether it's at the last time when Christ returns. In every one of these circumstances of history, God is the one that is holding and protecting us, his people. Therefore, in this you greatly rejoice. There is no reason not to rejoice in theirs. In the, no matter what the circumstance or context that we may find, we are to rejoice. And of course, then ver, uh, the, uh, the next verse, verse 8, uh, the second part says, rejoicing with joy inexpressible or rejoice with joy inexpressible. And again, that's the description of our lives as God's people a joy inexpressible. And of course, these are not, this isn't the only uh, paragraph in Scripture that talks about the joy that is ours. In Nehemiah 8, verse 10, uh, this declaration was given to the Israelites in that particular context. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to your Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
The joy of the Lord is our strength. Complaining about a circumstance isn't our strength. Recognizing a reality of difficulty isn't our strength. Knowing the trial that we face isn't our strength. The joy of the Lord, rejoicing with joy inexpressible. There we find a a power uh, to strengthen us. That is our strength. Now there are, of course, various trials. There are all kinds of trials. There are kinds of difficulties. Uh, There are the trials of sickness. There is the trial of a struggle with sin. There's a trial of persecution. There's a trial of, of having an unbelieving friend or relative or child or parent. There's a trial of sudden death, uh, vexing situations in life. There is a trial that some may have of not, having to, not being able to have children. And these are trials of life that God's people... Uh, in various uh, various members of God's people uh, will experience at some time or another, and we all experience trials of various ways. We all experience the trial. But God does not intend those trials to drive us to despair. He wants us, even in the midst of the trial, to rejoice with joy inexpressible. Because the trial itself is a testing of our faith, which is not a bad thing, but a good thing. In this you greatly rejoice. If need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Well, how can you have grief and rejoicing in the same place? Well, it says we can have uh, we can be grieved and experience the peace that passes understanding. And so we can, we can know the joy that is uh, rejoicing with joy inexpressible, even in a context of grief and sorrow. Sometimes that's, in one sense, fairly easy. I was just uh, at a funeral of, my, of, a, of an aunt from my wife's side of the family, uh, She was a a godly woman. She had professed her faith in Jesus Christ. and Her body and mind were growing weaker and weaker at at her age of 82 years. And unexpectedly, the Lord calls her home. It was not expected. But there was grief. But of course, we know that We as God's people, you've experienced that as a child of God, that every single funeral isn't a place that you go with a great mourning and tragic sadness. Even in those circumstances, we can know the joy of the Lord. But in this, we do not not face these kinds of trials as those who have no hope, who cannot rejoice, knowing that God's hand protects us And heaven awaits the child of God. The second coming awaits the people of God. And we rejoice in this. But also we know that though we are grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of our faith, being much more precious than gold, 
precious to us, precious to God. God is keeping that faith. He's keeping us. Though it perishes, though it is tested by fire, it may be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There are eight purposes that are set in God's word concerning testing. There's probably more. Uh, It's tied to this this genuineness of faith uh, that can be seen in various, uh, not just various trials, but various ways in which God uses the trials to test us and test our faith, to refine our faith. It is to reclaim us from wandering in sin. There is often times that God will bring a trial to to bring us uh, from wandering in sin. Psalm 119, 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Uh, David would recognize that that there was at times that he was afflicted. Uh, We know that this was certainly the case with David and Bathsheba as Uh, David would say that his bones were waxing away within him, uh, that there was no peace or rest in his heart. And that that was a grievous trial. There was this experience. But God was doing that in order to bring him to true repentance, to a state of being able to hear the prophet declare, you are the man, and come to true repentance. And so God does do that. Not that every trial is that for every child. Of course not. But that certainly can be the case. It, in connection with that, God's trial at, or God's testing sometimes expose our sin when we do not know that it is there. We may think that we're a very patient person and a trial comes and we become impatient and God reminds us that our patience will be dependent upon him and and that we need to be driven to him and that we need to grow in that area of life it will at the very same time cut down any pride that we thought we had because we thought we were so patient and then a trial comes and we become impatient and so it will sometimes expose a sin that is there. In that passage that I read earlier about the joy of the Lord is your strength, it was in the reading of the law. Sometimes in in the reading of the law and by Nehemiah, in the book of Nehemiah, by in that reading of the law, The people heard the law and they heard how far they had strayed from the obedience to the law and they were totally distressed. And God said, the day of coming to recognize your sin is not a day of total distress, but it is a day to rejoice because you have been convicted. And the very fact that you come to know and to see your sin and to see where you fall short is a blessing that you can even rejoice in. Thank you, Lord. I rejoice that you have shown me where I needed to grow in grace and in knowledge, where I failed to live according to your law. But that ought not to drive us to ultimate despair. But we come to that point in the, the, the movement from, uh, from sorrow to sin to rejoicing because we know that God is accomplishing his greater purpose 
His purpose isn't ultimately to show us our sin and to, to drive us into uh, to misery and despair over the sin, but it is to move us out of the sin and to move us to rejoicing in all the grace and mercy that comes to us even in the context of that sin. And so God's trials bring us to greater holiness, uh, keeping his commandments First uh, John 15, 10 and 11. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Keeping God's commandments are not contrary to knowing joy. They are in harmony with it. To prove God's love for us, another reason God sometimes chastens us. Hebrews 12, 11. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful nevertheless after it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Rejoicing with joy inexpressible. It makes us more dependent upon God's power in our lives. We go through our daily lives and sometimes we're, we would say, you're on a roll. You're, it's just going, things are going along. They're going fairly well. And, and we need to be constantly reminded that it's in every circumstance of life, it is God's power that is upholding us, God that is there. And our trials remind us that God has the power and he's the one that is upholding his child and so it makes, us more, it makes us more aware of our total dependence upon God's power in our lives. We often see that when we say, when we, we are driven to prayer in the context of trial. It is to prepare us for eternity, to point out the genuineness of our faith. And so in the midst of trial, God's child will ultimately come to a deeper assurance of their faith. That's how God works in trial. It may not seem like it for a moment, but it will happen. This is his promise. In this text, this is the promise. The promise is that it is your faith is more precious more precious to God and ought to be more precious to you. And God is refining that faith. He is strengthening that faith. He is having that faith focused on him more fully in the context of this trial. And so James declares it this way. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces patience. And let have patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking and lacking nothing. It is precious. Our faith is precious. We saw that as God protects that which is precious in the keep of his mind and his power at work within us to the praise of his glory. Our faith will be fully revealed at the second coming. Uh, Our faith 
uh, will, it is tested by fire that it may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Praise, the honor, and the glory to our God. But we too will not be praising ourselves, but God will uplift us. He will glorify us. And there comes that day when there will be no more trial, no more tear. One of the other themes of this passage is these three remain faith, hope, and love. And we've seen those, all those words intermixed in this passage here as well, haven't we? We have the hope that of God's uh, future work uh, that is coming. We're kept by his power and we have a hope. And we have faith and that faith is tied to our love for God, for Christ. To the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, the second coming is again emphasized in verse 7. Whom having not seen, you love. And though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. We do not have to wait until we see Jesus face to face to rejoice with joy inexpressible in God, that one whom we love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The faith that is rejoicing is a faith that is loving. Faith and love go together. It is impossible to love without faith. And where there is faith, there will always be a love for God. It isn't simply a a matter of having a pattern or a, a law. God's law in our lives is always connected to love for God, love for Jesus, love for the Holy Spirit. It is a love relationship that is being described by God's word and God's love. And in this we rejoice. We rejoice. Psalm 5, verse 11. Let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. This great biblical theme of love, faith, hope, and love united together is Old and New Testament. It is the heart of the child of God because they're all fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness in the context of rejoicing with joy, inexpressible joy that has a particular love for Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus whom having not seen you love. As we love that one that we don't see. And people of God, that's more difficult than loving the one we do see. Some 
John 4.20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? We don't see Jesus anymore. The disciples did for a time, but we do not. But we see him by faith. And we know the words of Jesus that he spoke to Thomas. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, yet believe, yet trust, yet love. There is joy inexpressible. It's the joy of a love relationship known by faith in our God. And it keeps on rejoicing. Rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That that phrase is a, a phrase that absolutely focuses on the ongoing nature of that joy. The ongoing nature. It doesn't stop. It doesn't cease. It continues. Rejoice, as 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 19, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Rejoice always, always, with a joy inexpressible, a joy that is present even in the midst of grief. Because we will receive that salvation because Jesus is the one who saves. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We saw how that word salvation has past, present, and future implication. But we also know that that salvation is absolutely and totally dependent upon God sending his son God giving us Christ. God gifting us Jesus. That name above all names. That name that itself means Yahweh saves. Joshua. The Lord saves. People of God, with such glorious declarations, how could we not be defined as a people who are rejoicing with joy inexpressible. God has saved us in his son. He will save us. And he is saving us. And so, people of God, no matter what the circumstance of your life, rejoice with joy inexpressible knowing that God is keeping you, holding you, and bringing you to a better point through wherever you are at the present. And so we close with those words again over and over in Scripture. But Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Amen. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, We pray that we may never be known as the people that are grumbling and complaining and miserable. But, oh God, that we may know and live out the reality of rejoicing with joy inexpressible in our Lord and Savior, 
in the power of your work in our lives. And so, Father, we give you thanks and pray that you would help us ever more to see clearly Jesus and be that people who are rejoicing with joy inexpressible. We ask this in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.